Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Episode 108, Futurama. This podcast is supported by our amazing patrons. If you want to support Hans, go to patreon.com slash history Aotearoa. Last time, we talked about the all-important concept of tapu, and the people in Māori society that helped navigate it, the tohunga. Today, we will discuss more about the practicalities of religion, specifically karakia, divination, makutu, and magic. Matakite is commonly translated into divination, which is basically the fancy term for seeing into the future. But matakite are also the people who practiced divination, or as best put it, had the gift of second sight, since it could also encompass seeing the dead or other supernatural beings. Mata means, among other things, surface or eye, and kite means to see or to perceive or discover. So the idea of a second sight, or maybe a sixth sense, isn't too far off. Divination could come in a number of forms, from just simply interpreting signs seen out in the world, to performing rituals with the specific intent of asking an atua what the future held. The god could then respond by speaking through the tohunga, though more often than not, the gods would sing through him. Otherwise, they could make some sort of sign in the natural world, all of which the tohunga would explain the meaning of. A particularly powerful tohu was rakutia, or closed sun. Quote, At midday there was darkness, and the stars were seen. After two hours, perhaps of darkness, daylight returned. End quote. Which, as you might guess, probably describes an eclipse of some kind. Other tohu could include sneezing while eating as a sign that a visitor or some news would arrive soon, or if the right arm spasms during sleep, that was good luck. If the left, then it was bad luck. Some people would hear noises in the bush, similar to the sound of a European death watch beetle, a tapping or clicking sound, which was related to death of either the person who heard it or someone they knew. The position of the stars and planets could also indicate various things, such as Venus's position relative to the moon would indicate if a besieged pa was going to be taken. Some Europeans believed that Matakite used ventriloquism to trick people into thinking it was the gods that were speaking, or just to enhance their quote-unquote performance. They also thought there was an element of hypnotism, but Best says there isn't really evidence for this. One way to conduct a divination ritual was to drop sticks or fern stalks onto the ground and interpret how they fell, or the marks they left in the ground. Such as using one stick to represent a friendly towa and another stick to represent the enemy. 
They would then be thrown to the ground and, depending on how they landed, such as one stick on top of the other, that would indicate how the battle would go. Other ways to do it would be to put two sticks into the ground upright and tie a stick horizontally across them. The tohunga would then take another stick with a lock of hair on it that belonged to a chief or someone else important and wave it across the sticks while reciting a karakia. What they were looking for was how the hair moved and whether it touched the horizontal stick as this would tell them the fate of a towa in their forthcoming attack. These were relatively simple methods, and more complicated ones could be used depending on the importance of what they were trying to find out. Sometimes a tohunga through matakite would identify a papa. This is an item or items or even a few people that, if destroyed, captured or just seen, would lead to victory. This would lead to some towa and individuals making what would otherwise be odd strategic choices in battle in order to fulfil these conditions. One story from Tuhoi was that to win a battle, a waka needed to be seen and a specific man clad in red needed to be killed. In another case, a tree needed to be seen, and a quote, fear-headed person, end quote, needed to be captured. In this case, they failed. They got too eager and killed the person instead of capturing them, resulting in the attacking towa being routed and chased into the mountains. In some cases, the tohunga would explain that should the towa follow his instructions, or rather those of the atua he communed with, they would definitely be successful. But the tohunga himself was guaranteed to be killed. So sometimes the tohunga would go into battle knowing they were going to die, but in exchange their people would be guaranteed victory. Heavy stuff. Of course, they would sometimes predict the deaths of others, which was always a bit dangerous, such as in one case where a tohunga predicted the death of a Pākehā colonel and got caught trying to poison him. Dreams were also an important way to predict the future, such as if a man dreamt of human skulls on the ground with feathers, it was a sign his wife would conceive soon. The type of feathers on the skulls would also indicate the sex, huia for girls, kotuku for boys. Dreams were a key form of matakite, and many tohunga said they spoke to Atua while they were asleep. Best claims that the gods talk to them in dreams and possibly during their waking hours in a quote, whistling tone of voice, end quote. He suggests that this is the reason Māori didn't whistle and why they didn't like hearing Europeans do it. What's interesting is that someone who could predict the future via dreams was known to have rata rather than matakite. So a distinction was made between the two types of divination. 
This is possibly because dreaming wasn't exactly like trying to see or predict the future. It was the waidua, the soul, leaving the body and seeing things that couldn't normally be seen. Matakite wasn't done by the waidua leaving the body, so it was distinct and different. A lot of what matakite involved was reciting karakia. Of course, karakia was present in almost every facet of Māori life, and most people would know at least a few simple ones that pertained to their daily activities. Best says karakia has a broad definition, quote, a charm, a spell, an incantation, an invocation, any simple form of words, no matter how puerile they may be, uttered in order to avert ill fortune, to secure good luck, to render one disastrous, skilful, to cause a child's kite to fly or top to spin, all were termed karakia, as also were invocations to the supreme being." End quote. So karakia could range from long elaborate prayers to simply a two-word phrase that someone says when they stub their toe, kuruki fakataha. This consists of the word meaning to become powerless, and the word meaning to put to one side, which, to me, possibly translates to mean something to the effect of, that really hurt, but I'll walk it off. A slightly more complex karakia could be someone with a stomachache repeating, Tell XYZ I have a stomachache. The idea was to say the names of any rangatira or tohunga they knew who could then contact their tipuna, tribal gods, or anyone else in the spirit world who could stop the demon or spirit from causing the stomachache. As mentioned, everyone would know a few karakia as it pertained to them and their life, many of which we have covered in previous episodes. Kids would know some that they would recite during games or to stop it raining. Wrestlers knew some that would give them strength and weaken their opponent. Fishermen or fowlers would know some to say over their hooks, nets and spears so they could catch better and so on. Quote, Tree climber and traveller, paddler and planter, bushman and bather, all possessed their private budget of charms. No man so lowly, no calling so humble, but it possessed a few necessary charms. End quote. Of course, there were those only known by tohunga, which were more complicated and more tapu. But remember, a tohunga wasn't just a priest. A tohunga could be in any sort of profession, and as such, they knew medium-level karakia for usually one or two different areas, like fishing, trapping, war, agriculture, carving, or weaving. The highest level were those practiced by the cult of Io, which were only known by the tohunga ahurewa, the highest ranked of the spiritual tohunga. Some rituals performed by the most tapu tohunga were performed in public and seemed to be significant and important functions to life, such as those conducted during planting or matariki. 
But the most tapu rituals were done behind closed doors, and only with a few people present. These most tapu rituals were usually where Eeyore's name was invoked. Well, I say they invoked Eeyore's name, but that may not be strictly true. What's interesting about any karakia regardless of level is that Atua were rarely directly invoked or appealed. That is, they often weren't mentioned by name. Sometimes just mentioning them in an abstract way, such as saying the children of the sky and earth, was enough to gain some of their mana, which could then be used to achieve the speaker's goals. What makes this even more interesting is why Māori believed this abstract speaking worked, and by extension, how karakia worked at all. Quote, A Māori karakia was an incantation or charm, a form of words which was effective simply by its own innate virtue, without any reference to the state of mind of the person using it and without the interventive assistance of any superior power giving its effect, end quote. To break that down, karakia and Māori religion in general was quite indirect. The karakia didn't need to be directly related to or talking about the event it was being used for. The words had meaning and power all on their own. Te Ao Māori is a world of words, of language. It's part of the reason why te reo is considered a significant taonga today. It's not just the way to communicate. Without a written word, it's the way to pass on knowledge, history, law and science. It makes sense then that a culture that relied so heavily on its oral language believed that speaking those words had an inherent power. Though Best adds that someone did need to have mana for those words to matter, so there was a somewhat base requirement there. Sometimes recitals of whakapapa would be part of a karakia or wider ritual, the idea being that naming people of import would add mana and power to whatever they were doing. They may also recite the whakapapa of the universe before it was created, those entities slash states of tepo. Karakia could be spoken in a rhythmic way, with the more tapu ones spoken with, quote, careful delivery and modulation of tone, end quote. Often, invocations to Io, or the Big Six, were made with a, quote, smooth, rhythmical, long-continued flow of words, maintained as long as the reciter's breath held out, end quote. Usually, this was a one-person job, but for particularly tapu karakia, it could be done by two tohunga, with one going on for as long as he could, and the second picking up where he left off, so that there wasn't a break in the speaking, since a break, mispronunciation, or other such faltering could result in a real-world disaster. 
A number of early European explorers saw Māori perform karakia where they would talk in a quote, long, solemn and cadenced speech, end quote. Specifically when they came aboard their ships, striking the ship with a small green branch. The idea being that they were removing any evil spirits and other bad stuff from the vessel, since it and the people on it were very unfamiliar. Karakia and any rituals they were a part of were most often done in the early hours of the morning, though there were a couple of exceptions, such as ones done in relation to war. The idea behind this was that in the morning, your stomach would be empty. Thus, you would be more capable of performing the ritual due to not having anything gnaw inside of you. Feasts were often the conclusion to an important ritual, which also usually was preceded by fasting during the ritual itself. Again, food is gnaw. It counteracts tapu. So, it makes sense that you wouldn't want to be Noah during the tapu ceremony, but you would want to remove that tapu afterwards. Dancing was common in both the ritual themselves as well as the feasts, usually accompanied with singing. Rivers and streams were a popular place to perform rituals, usually with the person being fully submerged at the critical point, as the water was meant to insulate the person against malevolent forces. Fire was also an often used tool in ritual and ceremony. Items would be thrown into a fire after it had been made tapu, usually by way of karakia. This would sometimes reference Maui specifically, given his story of taking fire from Mahuika. Depending on the ceremony, the fire itself could be named differently, best recording 28 different names for tapu fires. The names usually being ahi, the te term for fire, followed by the name of the particular ritual. There were fires for divination, to give men going to war courage, to bring good or bad weather, rendering enemies weak or faint-hearted, during an exhumation of bones, protecting crops, injuring people, or just fires for cooking food during feasts or special occasions for very tapu people, like ariki or tohunga. Hangi could also be used in place of ahi tapu as well. In these fires, other than wood, anything from kumara or birds to the hearts of enemies could be burned. Once the ahi tapu had fulfilled its purpose, it wasn't uncommon for the tapu to not be lifted until after it had burned away, and as such it was an offence to trespass in those places. Māori also practised firewalking to give some rituals more prestige, though by the sounds of it, in the Māori case, the fire was a big semicircle hangi, as opposed to the other similar practices throughout Polynesia. Perhaps a more unusual item of karakia, matakite and ritual in general was hair. Since the head was the most tapu part of the body, hair appeared in a few different ceremonies and other religious capacities. 
In fact, the cutting of the hair was a rather tapu event. Tuhoi would cut hair at a specific point in a stream, or at a specific pool that was designated for tapu tasks like this. Cutting hair could also be part of larger ceremonies, and was often one of the last things done during a ritual. Why this was, though, Best is unable to say. It was common for hair to be cut once a year on a designated day during Matariki. It was a big event, with people from all over the region gathering in one place to watch or take part. Potentially, there were up to a thousand viewers coming along to see Doug get his palm. During the ceremony, an obsidian knife would be made tapu via karakia before the hair was cut. Afterwards, the hair might be laid onto a tuahu or some kind of altar. Until the ceremony was over, everyone would fast and no fires would be lit, except for one which would be used to burn the cut hair. This obviously varied from region to region, and was not practiced everywhere. Additionally, people who got their hair cut with this amount of fanfare were most definitely people of high rank, mana, and tapu. No one is coming out to see me get my bi-monthly shave. Another custom was to cut off all the hair except for one lock as a sign of mourning. This was popular in particular with widows who cut their hair as short as they could, and sometimes singe off the rest with fire. Where the final piece of hair was left could depend on a few different factors, such as if it was in relation to the death of a child, the hair would be left on the right side if it was a boy, and on the left side if it was a girl. Again though, this varied a lot between hapu and iwi. The way hair was actually worn was in a top knot, and in some cases, a cord made from the plaited hair of a killed enemy would be used to tie it up, sometimes with huia feathers if the person was a rangatira. In the same vein, hair from an enemy was often taken back to the pa after a battle to allow the tohunga to perform various rites and ceremonies over it particularly in relation to stopping the defeated enemy from being able to seek Utu. Cook and many other early European explorers recorded finding human hair tied to trees, or tucked into crevices between rocks, possibly as a way to hide their hair from malevolent forces who would certainly use it for evil magic. However, Best says it is likely that there was something else going on here. Otherwise, instead of hiding it, they would have just burnt it. So perhaps it was thought something bad would happen if it was burnt. Or the need to hide it was more related to a connection to the earth. As you might have guessed, hair was a popular medium to use in relation to makatu given its tapu relation to the head. Makatu translates into witchcraft, sorcery, or black magic. As such, hair could be used to injure, dull the senses, or otherwise do bad things to someone. 
However, Makatu could be employed to do things like find thieves and punish them. So it wasn't always just because of some malicious senile wizard doing it for fun. Sometimes it was just mundane stuff. The hair didn't always have to be from the victim though. In one case, a person plucked some of his own hair and dropped it into a drink that was about to be consumed by the victim as a karakia was spoken. Hair could also be used to placate kanifa. Quote, As I was in my canoe in Tafitinui fishing for my hair, when I heard a strange sound, and two great waves came rolling in from the lake. Also, I heard two loud reports, like unto that of the cannon of the white man. Then I knew that the Tanifa was angry. Oh friend, quickly I plucked from my head a hair and cast it into the water, reciting at the same time a charm whereby to render the demon harmless and to calm the rolling water, end quote. The hair also didn't always need to be from the head. It could also be from the armpits, legs, abdomen, if you were hairy enough, and even the genitals. Hair is actually used in a huge number of ways, like when encountering a lizard on the road, some hair would be burned in an ahi. Or by putting a hair into the mouth of the first catch of fish and releasing it which would help in getting good fortune in future catches by imparting some of that person's mana to the fish, and was kind of like an offering to Tangaroa. Here has been discovered in carved figures with umbilical cords, and deposited at the edge of a rohe or some other important place, though Best doesn't explain why this was. On the east coast of Teika Amawi, a messenger would cut off half of his hair and cover that spot in red okra. When he arrived to deliver his message, it would be immediately understood what he was there for, to seek aid in war. Those from Tuhoi who entered the Farewananga would have their hair cut at the Waitapu, as another tohonga would recite a karakia. People of Takatimu would use their hair to impart the mana of a priest on a new farewananga when it was erected. When a season's teaching ended, each pupil would bury some hair and saliva to prevent the students from being affected by evil magic in the future. Hair was also used in exorcisms, joining the hair from the tohonga and the patient together and putting them in the patient's mouth. When the demon was exorcised, it would do so via this piece of hair. A ritual called Mona Hirihiri involved taking some hair to a mountain and offering it up to call upon the aid of Tupuna. The idea being that those ancestors would have been buried in the mountain ranges they were offering up to. If you were listening closely there, you may have picked up that I mentioned saliva. And boy, can I tell you about spit. Saliva was used a lot in ritual, ceremony, and makatu, much like hair was. 
Saliva could also actually be used to reverse makatu. In one case, in the early 19th century, a European bought a comb from Māori, but since the comb had touched someone's head, it was tapu. So, he spoke a karakia over it and spit on his fingers to run them over the comb, thus removing the tapu. In one ceremony to find out if someone had been affected by makatu, a tohunga had the victim spit into his hand, then slapped it across his right cheek, and, quote, saw the wizard on his left side, end quote. Another ritual would be performed to kill this wizard, but if the victim wished to save them, then the tohunga would need to spit on their forehead. If a man wanted his cheating wife to return to him, he was told to spit into a shell and give it to a tohunga who would manipulate it, quote, in a very extraordinary way, end quote. In a similar vein, spitting on a weapon was a common way to weaken enemies that the wielder may encounter in the coming battle. Another way to deal with a lizard that you encounter would be to kill it, spit on it, cut it into pieces, and burn it to stop any evil stuff happening. On the wider cultural level, spitting was done when there was, quote, danger in the ear, end quote. So if someone was suspected of being the victim of makatu, they would be encouraged not to eat or swallow saliva, as the curse would enter via the mouth. Or it could just be when there was heavy tapu in an area, such as opening a tapu hangi a woman was careful not to swallow. Rituals over women who were about to give birth varied depending on the rank of the woman and the rank of the child. Firstborn kids, particularly males, would have the most tapu karakia and rites performed over them, whereas people of much lower rank would only have a simple karakia or perhaps nothing at all. When women of rank were about to give birth, they would move to a specially made fare on the outskirts of the settlement, which was usually destroyed after she left. This was called the fare kohanga, which literally translates into birthing house, but effectively means nursery or maternity ward. A similar practice of isolation was performed if someone was sick. In some cases, the woman only went into the new house after the child was born, in which case it was called the fare kahu, where they would remain until the tapu was lifted from them. This separation was so that the woman and baby wouldn't come into contact with people that grow food, just in case the noa nature of food made her less tapu in her current state. Karakia could also be used to help with the birth itself, especially if it was turning out to be a particularly difficult one often invoking the name of the moon, who is heavily linked with women, pregnancy, and menstrual cycles. Karakia were then said after the baby was born, and during the cutting of the umbilical cord, so that the child may become, quote, intelligent and clever, to endow it with a clear mind, end quote. The umbilical cord, called an iho, 
would be either buried somewhere or put into the hollow of a tree at the edge of the rohe. Sometimes the same tree would be used for multiple children and so would have red okra smeared on it to indicate as such. Sometimes a tree was planted on the spot where the iho was buried and the growth of the tree would indicate if the child would grow to be healthy. When the baby was a month old and quote, strives with its hands to reach its mother's breast, end quote, two fires would be made, one for the ariki and the other for the atua. Aruhe would be cooked in the fire and a karakia said. The aruhe would then be taken from the fire and waved over the child with more karakia before the aruhe is buried in a sacred place. The mother would do a similar action, touching another aruhe to various parts of the child's body, also burying this one after she spits on it. Depending on the iwi, the father and grandmother may also get involved in this ritual. Other times, the aruhe would be eaten instead of buried, the action being called kai katoa ete tamaiti the eating of the child all over. If, during this ceremony, one of the women of the Ariki's family is missing, a figure made of quote-unquote weeds would be made, and stuck in the ground to represent her. Up until this point, the child was considered very tapu, and wouldn't have been able to be held by the rest of the family other than the mother and possibly the father. But after this ceremony, the child was no longer considered tapu and is able to be embraced by the wider whānau. There were also naming rites, which may or may not involve a baptism of sorts, where a twig or hand was dipped into the water of a stream, with the water sprinkled over the child, the family and anyone else gathered. These rituals varied a fair bit, but the general gist was that the baby was named, imparted with good health and well-being, and dedicated to eel or to matoinga. In the case of Tu, Best says that dedicating a child to him was because he is the god of war. But I wonder whether it was more due to Tu being the creator of man. And, in most myths, his presence is usually an allegory for humans as a whole. A child could also be dedicated to rongo and endow them with qualities of art, culture and cultivation. So, perhaps it was related to war and peace, around what issues the tribe was currently facing. Generally, before you make babies though, there would need to be marriage. Shortland says that the brothers of a woman have the most say in who she marries, rather than the parents or, you know, herself. There wasn't exactly a marriage ceremony in the same way that Western Christianity would recognise. However, there was some ritualised meetings of the soon-to-be-weds, and a marriage feast would be held to solidify the whole thing. During the feast, a tohunga would say some karakia to ward off evil influences from the couple, and ensure a long and happy union. 
As we have talked about in the past, a powerful rangatira or ariki might have multiple wives, some of whom have land. As such, the women would stay where they were to administer the land while their husband moved between his wives. Chiefs would also often have concubines from lower class families. As with marriage, there were karakia for courting someone, in some cases used to overcome a woman's distaste for a man. This would involve taking a small object, speaking some words over it, and placing it underneath the woman's pillow. In another form of this ritual, a medal-medal, or tomtit, would be used if the woman was some distance away, say the next kainā over or further. The medal-medal would fly to her and land on her head, making the woman get up and head straight to the person who spoke the karakia. Just like there were karakia if a woman cheats on her husband, there were karakia when a man strays from his wife. The woman would be taken by a tonga to a stream in the evening, and they would be sprinkled with water as a karakia was spoken. Then she would see, quote, the shadowy form, wairua, of her husband standing beside her. The woman was then told to go home, that all was well, and that her husband would soon be with her, end quote. The tohunga would then dispatch a bird to find the husband. Naturally, there were also rites around divorce, called toko. In some cases, this involved taking the wife to a stream to remove her affection for her husband, again sprinkling water over her and also touching her, quote, as though picking something from it, but brought away nothing immaterial, end quote. Often, the separating of rangi and papa was invoked, and, quote, the nettles and trees and plants of the forest are called upon to cause the woman's skin to be as quills upon the fretful porcupine in the presence of her husband. That is, to cause her to dislike him, end quote. This ritual could also be performed over both the husband and wife, if they both agreed. Divorce was said to be fairly common, with women either being set aside by their husbands for various reasons, war between his tribe and hers, or other outside factors. Although it was very, very rare for incestuous marriages to occur, it was pretty common to have a man married to two sisters, sometimes as a result of the death of the man's brother meaning he was obligated to marry his brother's wives to ensure they were cared for. Next time is going to be a pretty heavy discussion around death, funerals, and what happens to the soul after it leaves the mortal realm. It's potentially going to be a fairly intense episode, but death is a key part of life. And so, it is something we will try to cover with the respect it deserves. If you want to send me feedback, ask a question, suggest a topic, or just have a chinwag, you can find my email and social media on historyaltearoa.com. 
Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. You can also find helpful resources there, like transcripts, sources, and translations for some of the Te Reo Māori we have used. You can help support Hans through Patreon, buying merch, or giving us a review. It means a lot and helps spread the story of Aotearoa New Zealand. As always, haere tu atu, hoki tu mai. See you next time.